our scholars are all women of color. They are black and brown girls. And given like what the world is right now, we want to give them the tools to allow themselves to know themselves as the powerful, incredible, beautiful humans that they are, even when the world is maybe not sending those messages and telling them that we want them to feel confident with themselves. We want them to be able to reclaim power over their cultures, identities, and experiences. And we do so by having workshops. We call them our social justice curriculum. We call it identity forming curriculum, where they're talking about difficult topics like colorism, bullying, like self-love. What is mass incarceration? What is sexualization of women in media? And being able to really dive into these very difficult topics. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein. This is episode number 137. Well, it's a great one. I'm going to let you know right off the top. My guest is Natalie Tung, and Natalie is an absolute trailblazer. She is an innovator. She's putting her energy and her life where her advocacy is. And it's just really not just inspirational to talk to Natalie and see what she's doing and trying to do, but also just fascinating because what she's discovered is that for underprivileged kids, especially girls in inner cities, high school is not easy. And there are so many challenges from the community, from the need for support. She came up with this idea that some almost like creating, well, it is creating a dorm for high school kids where they actually live together in this supervised dorm during the week. They go back home on the weekends, but during the week they go to school, they get driven to school, they get picked up to come back. They live in the dorm, they live together, they have this social network, this community, they have all kinds of additional enrichment activities. They're full-time staff members that are there all the time. They eat a family-style meal. They learn about women empowerment, civic engagement, cultural life skills, and absolutely focus on academics. It's such an interesting idea because some listeners went to private school, went away to boarding school, and had an interesting experience, right? Because you're going to school, but then you're living with the people you're going to school with. You're living right there on the premise and you get to be totally immersed in this interactive environment where there's so much life-like learning. But if you live in a tougher community where there are not nearly as many resources, well, you don't have that opportunity because private schools and boarding schools are very, very expensive. What Natalie Tung has done is created something called Homeworks, which is a nonprofit that runs this free community-based after-school residential program for black and brown high school girls in Trenton, New Jersey. Trenton, as we will discuss may very well be only the first stop because Natalie has the aspiration and the energy to see if this idea has legs to leverage it into a lot of different places, maybe around the country because of the impact that this program has on kids. Homeworks started in 2016. She did it all from scratch. Natalie herself is a young woman not that long out of university. She's been honored and her team has been honored by Princeton University, which is where she went and I think first got this idea. McKinsey, Comcast, Hollister, Vital Voices, and lots of other places as well. Natalie Tung is the co-founder and executive director of Homeworks Trenton, 
It's this free community-based after-school boarding program. She grew up, as she describes it, a numbers-driven public school system in Hong Kong. Again, as she describes it, she developed a quote-unquote unhealthy relationship with learning. All that changed when she had the opportunity to attend a boarding school in New Jersey. Well, she was reborn, really. Living with, in her case, 40 girls at such a young age really empowered her to become more empathetic and much more confident. And many of those women that she went to boarding school with remain her support system today. While at Princeton, she earned a teaching certificate, actually as a sophomore, and then she started Homeworks with really the idea of replicating the experience that she had, except for girls in marginalized communities around the world. She's raised over $2 million already and is just really in the earliest stages of seeing, it's kind of like a rocket ship that's just in the earliest stages of starting to take off. I love the idea. I heard a banali from Joyce Cadesco, who was a guest on the Sitcast last season. I heard about Natalie and I talked to her and I just thought, what a great guest for the Sitcast. A story worth telling and hopefully maybe even expanding that network and making some connections with some of you who are listening because she is, as I said, a trailblazer but someone who understands that she needs a village. She needs a team. She's raising money. She's doing an amazing thing. So I'm so excited to have her on the Sidcast, and I know you will enjoy listening to this conversation as well. Natalie Tung on the Sidcast. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am here with my guest, Natalie Tung. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Sid. First, just want to say it's so great to see you again, and thank you so much for having me on here. I'm really excited just to talk to you and just to learn throughout this process. So thank you. Well, that's great. And we're excited to hear about what you're up to. I don't ask people this question, but I'm going to ask you, how old are you? (laughs) I am turning 27 in September. Okay. So now all (laughs) listeners will put that into perspective and we hear what Natalie has accomplished already. And it's pretty cool. So we're going to talk about a lot of things, but I want to start with, of course, Homeworks Trenton. First of all, what is this idea? What we are is a free community-based after-school residential program. We're basically from Sunday nights to Friday mornings. Our scholars stay overnight in our dorm. We take them to and from school, specifically to their public schools throughout the day. Then after picking them up, they come to our dorm. We do programming focused on building them up to be community leaders. They have a family-style meal, stay overnight throughout the week, and then go home on the weekends. And so really what we're doing here is not only replicating a boarding school and bringing it to public schools and with all the benefits of their wraparound learning and all that, but also doing so in a way that reverses the narrative that our kids need to leave their communities to be successful. And really at the core of what we're doing is creating a community specifically for our black and brown girls here in Trenton to reclaim power over their cultures, identities and experiences. So that's interesting that there's a concept or a belief among many people that you have to leave your community to be successful. Is that the case? I guess there's some research behind or maybe practical evidence. It's a bit surprising, but maybe you could share a little bit more about that. I think especially, and this is my expertise, I think it's a little bit in the boarding school world where even in terms of the research and also just like the statistics around boarding schools, it is still very privileged space where it is still majority white, still majority upper income levels of kids who can go to these boarding schools. And I think in more recent years been a shift in having more scholarships and more diversity within these schools. But I think at the same time, it does come with the cost because these spaces are still very privileged. There have been a lot of articles that have come out to just say like a lot of people feel like they have to strip their identity. They have to conform to 
a certain norm and certain privilege in order to be able to thrive, in order to be able to be in those environments. One book I'm specifically thinking about, it was in the New York Times recently, but it's called When Dasani Left Home, I think is what it's called. And it goes into a little bit of this as well. But I think more personally, I can also speak to this too. I was originally born and raised in Hong Kong and I was very lucky and had this opportunity to be able to come to the U.S. to go to this boarding school. But I do think a lot of it, too, is, yeah, like had to leave my home. I had to leave my family. I had to leave my culture and trade that in order to get this education Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And I feel very lucky to be able to have gone that. But I do think that there is some sort of cost as well. That all makes sense. And of course, kids that go through the program and then go off to college will have that outside of their community challenge in dealing with the rest of the world. But they'll be a little bit older and maybe that's part of the point, right? They'll be 18 or 19 or not 14 or 15. So these are kids that are in the community. They're still going to the same schools. Yes, they are. So they all still go to, there's only technically one public high school in Trenton, and then they're split in between ninth grade and then 10th through 12th grade. How many kids are in the program right now? We just finished the year with 11 scholars, but we're hoping to be able to expand in Trenton to 40 scholars at full capacity. And then the dream is to have chapters of homeworks all around the country, all around the world. I thought as much. Basically, you're proving the model from a business point of view, if you will. But how many years has this actually been happening that you've been executing on the idea? We started off in 2016. At that point, it was just an idea. I spent a whole year recruiting a team and working with our community to kind of build out like what this finding funding, building out what this is going to look like. And then in 2017, we had our first cohort. We just had a summer cohort of five. We eventually expanded to a semester long program and then a year long program during the pandemic where we did have to adapt our model and go into a day program. And then this past year, a few weeks ago, we just wrapped up our first ever year-long residential program. You know, we've been slow and steady. (laughs) Yeah, step by step. So the first five kids, was it tough to get them? Were there a hundred kids that wanted to do this? What was kind of the supply and demand side of this? Yeah, it was definitely tough. I will say at first, because we are a new concept, we're a completely new model. And then on top of that, I know like, I'm young. I look young as well. I think getting the trust with the communities, with our parents, you know, our parents are obviously very protective of their kids. And like, if they don't know the program, like why would they feel comfortable to send, especially to a residential program? But we were very lucky that we had someone in our community that was on our team. And so I think through knowing him and through being able to build upon that trust, they then kind of took that leap of faith. And then what ended up happening was three out of the five ended up continuing with us. I think it was three out of five. Yeah, continuing with us that next year. And then the more that momentum came, they told their friends. We had a little bit more success stories to share with our community as well. That I think has snowballed a little bit more trust year by year. How did it work with the high school, with the administration? I won't lead the witness on it. Let's hear how you describe it. I think the other part of it is when I was actually studying in college, I was getting, my minor was to get a teaching certificate specifically within the Trenton schools. And so because of that, I actually had some relationships already built with Trenton teachers, Trenton administrators. And so I was able to see firsthand within the school system, how everything worked and who I could communicate with. And so Over time, we really have been able, I feel very grateful. I know that the school, there's just so much going on all the time. There's underfunded system and everything, but those teachers and administrators have still made time for us. And 
they do believe in us and do believe in our model. So they do work very closely with us in order to make this work. And I will say we would not be successful without the school's partnership. We would not be successful without the parents. Yeah, they absolutely have to buy into the idea. And I guess they have to trust you at the beginning. But then they have the kids that provide the best evidence one way or the other. Yes. (laughs) When you just started, so three out of the five came back. What happened with the other two and what did you learn from that? Again, because we were trying to experiment and figure out what was the best age group? Where do we start? What were the best schools to tap into? Because yes, there is only one technically public school in the city. There's also like other charter schools. And so I think through that experimentation and through like what kind of student we were recruiting, we were very intentional about how are we going to move forward with this? And I have lost touch with both those students. I think we were at that point, we weren't able to accommodate all different kinds of students and wanted to make sure we were being intentional with it. What's the age of the students? I guess they vary because they're going through it for multiple years. But when you pick them up right at the beginning of high school? So when we first started out, we were actually working with middle schoolers. We realized we actually wanted to do it just from ninth through 12th grade. And we felt that that was the perfect age for our program. And I am actually very excited to say that our oldest scholar, DeRay, she's been with us from the very beginning and has been with us every single year. She eventually became peer leader. She interned with us at Homeworks. And I'm very proud to say that she actually is our first homework scholar to graduate high school. She's our oldest scholar and she got into nine different colleges. And under our partnership with the Give Something Back Foundation, she is going to be attending Montclair State University on a full ride scholarship. That's fantastic. I guess once parents see that, I mean, this is just happening. So are you getting more calls because of this from parents and more inquiries? Yeah, I will say I think something I have learned just doing homeworks is how important marketing is and how important (laughs) balancing the business side and then the program side. I was a trained educator. You know, that was really my track. I didn't ever envision myself to become an entrepreneur. I've always wanted to become a teacher. And so I think what I've learned over the years is, okay, in order to build something like homeworks in order to get the buy-in from parents, in order to get recruitment, in order to get the funding. We do also need to focus to have that attention on the business side and marketing means thinking about our social media platforms, like what audience goes to what and how are we intentionally putting out those messages. And I will say I have a very incredible team behind me and Vilma, who is our current operations director, has really been taking that on. And even if you go on our Instagram right now and you go from like the oldest post till now, like there has been such a big evolution to that since then. Definitely have gotten more attention, but I will say we haven't done a good enough job of lifting up DeRay's story and bragging about her. I think that's something that we definitely want to do more just to showcase how capable and how incredible she is. And we will talk more about the entrepreneurship side to this. I know that you've been involved and have learned a lot in the last year or so on that dimension as well. The problem that you are seeking to solve is a very, very severe problem. When you look at the data and the number of kids that don't graduate, don't even go to school sometimes, can you share a little bit about the extent of the problem so that our listeners can understand what the challenges that you're taking on? First, I just wanted to start out with our city and community here in Trenton. I just have so much love for this city. Being from Hong Kong, being not from this country and came really to get my teaching certificate to know the community a little bit more. And through that, just felt very grateful at how welcoming everyone was to me and how everyone was just so invested in the community and how much culture there was and how everyone really wants to see Trenton grow and to see Trenton thrive. I think within that, also seeing the other side 
side to it where because of all the systemic injustice, there's a lot of conversation around this even, I think, at this particular time over these past two years, but it has been ongoing, everything from systemic racism that then stems to underfunded housing and insurance and the healthcare system, the school system, mass incarceration, all of that, I think, leads to what our students are experiencing in Trenton. And specifically, I think what I ended up focusing on was our girls and our black and brown girls in Trenton, just seeing how both with sexism and racism, that's where our girls are at with that intersection and having so many additional challenges. And so I think just the statistics speak for itself, where 36% of our kids in Trenton schools are chronically absent. 90% of kids are not on grade level for math. 80% are not on grade level for English. And it is, again, the product of how the broken system has trickled into these statistics. I think in particular, what really made me feel very, I don't know, I guess aligned is that when I was going to school in Hong Kong, even though I had a lot of privilege and had access to different resources, I also was just studying in a school system where everything was based on numbers and I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel heard. I didn't feel valued within my school system. And then being all the way across the country and now teaching in this public school or getting my teaching certificate in this public school, I was hearing when I was having lunch with a lot of my students and specifically the girls, they were experiencing and expressing that they were not feeling safe in their classrooms. They were not feeling safe in their communities. They were not feeling heard. They were not feeling valued. And I just thought that was very interesting. And so that was the main thing that was tugging at my heart of like, how could girls from all over the world were experiencing all these things as women of color and then going on to seeing statistics in the real world where still at this time, Fortune 500 companies, there's a very small percentage of people who are leading those companies that are women of color. Just seeing that correlation because at the end of the day, I truly believe in the power of women. I believe that when women come together and when we really are at the forefront of things, magic happens. Women have this empathy, have this power and leadership that we really can change and shake up and move communities forward and change up the system. That was really what I was seeing when I was getting to know our community here. And that is what led me to think about, okay, how can we change the system, but in this innovative way with this innovative model? That was actually the impetus then for this idea in the first place. You saw it live. It related to yourself and your own experience, which is so, so different than the kids you're working with right now. I was just really lucky to having the opportunity to come to the U.S. and go to a boarding school here in New Jersey. And I guess just a little background about the boarding school, it is known as kind of a quote unquote elite private school where not only do you have low student to teacher ratio, you're living in a dorm where you're getting help with homework 24-7, where you're living with your teachers. Everything that you're doing inside the classroom is being reinforced outside the classroom. I was in a community of women who were my age and just being able to live with so many different kinds of girls and to be vulnerable with Mm -hmm. each other at the age of 13, at the age of 14. It was such a unique experience and it it did make me more confident. It was such a new experience where for the first time ever I was experiencing these girls where we were lifting each other up rather than tearing each other down. And it was such a magical, powerful experience. I wanted to replicate that and bring that to every single girl in this world and make that accessible to everyone and not just a very, very small group of people within the U.S. 
So the school that you went to, was it just a girls' school or was it girls and boys in separate sections? I'm trying to understand what created that environment, whereas you just described girls lifted each other up and were comfortable with each other, which is maybe not the most common experience in high school, in the typical, even a good high school. So I went to the Lawrenceville school and within this dorm, it was called the Kirby House. And so the way that Lawrenceville works is that it's almost divided into Harry Potter, like house systems where you have a lot of pride within these houses. And then I think on top of that, part of it is just the head of the house that was overseeing us within my specific dorm. She is to this day very much a feminist. (laughs) And she noticed that I think at that time there were only three women within the history of 200 years of our school that were presidents of the school. And so she was always very much like she wanted people in our dorm to become the president of the school. She wanted us to be leaders on campus. She wanted us to have the highest GPA and all of that. And I think just through her energy and her spirit, I think it bonded us as a house. It made us realize like, yes, we can do this and we can be the first. We can pursue these leadership positions. Every single person in the house, we were coming in with all these different experiences and coming in with different skills. And we were all pushing each other to do better and cheering for each other. That was just very special. Natalie, what you're describing is a person one in particular, I'm sure there were others, but one in particular and leader. And you think about what do we need to create? I mean, that's kind of what you're trying to answer with your own project. What do you need to do to create the environment and the situation where people can truly excel and excel being defined as fulfilling their potential and maybe even discovering a potential that they didn't even know existed. So there's the individual leader. There is the idea of whether it's the context of putting a group of people together in a really intense 24-7 type of environment. There's something about that that could go well or not well, but that's part of it. And I think you're probably trying to replicate a little bit of both. We will talk about some of the activities and what they do. You know, what do the kids do when they're done with public school, three o'clock to when they go to sleep. But what's your sense of what these underlying drivers are from people to the fact that everyone's together or I was going to say remote. It's not quite the right word, but certainly separated from most others. They're being signified as special by the mere token that not everyone's having this experience. How would you unpack that? I would say... There are probably three components that I have been thinking about in terms of how do we create the best culture, best environment for our scholars here at Homeworks. The first is definitely just the residential itself. I think the very fact that you're at the age that you are, you're 13 years old, you're just at the age where you're trying to discover who you are, you're understanding like, oh, this is me outside of the context of home, outside the context of school, and giving just the very space for our kids to just live together and to have those nighttime conversations. There are times where I go visit the house and just saying goodnight to everyone and it's lights out and I can hear the kids talking um, fast lights out. And they're probably talking just like I did after lights out at boarding school. Like that was the time where you're on your own in this room and you can trust this person to talk about your deepest vulnerabilities, deepest fears, or, you know, whatever you're thinking about and being able to have that safe space with people your age. There's something just magical about that residential piece where you're seeing people in their most vulnerable state. But then at the same time, two other things, culture, I think has a lot to do with it. What we're trying to do at Homeworks, our values, our intentionality, empathy and community. Something we're trying to do is 
making sure that we're being intentional about every single thing that we do at homeworks, every decision we make, every policy we have, even the way that we do discipline at homeworks, it's restorative justice. And that way, like we want to build a culture where our kids feel safe, where they're here to grow. We all make mistakes, but we're here to learn. We're here to just feel like we have each other's backs and we're here to grow in a way where we feel comfortable, feel safe. And I think that's part of it. And then I would say the third and probably the most important piece and something that is maybe a little bit different than my experience at boarding school was I really wanted to make sure that homeworks had, yes, we were residential, but the other special kind of sauce piece about us is we are identity driven. And really at the core of homeworks is we are building our scholars up to be leaders, but specifically we call it identity driven leadership. So I think the first step of this is our scholars are all women of color. They are black and brown girls. And I think given like what the world is right now, we want to give them the tools to allow themselves to know themselves as the powerful, incredible, beautiful humans that they are. Even when the world is maybe not sending those messages and telling them that we want them to feel confident with themselves. We want them to be able to reclaim power over their cultures, identities, and experiences. And we do so by having workshops. We call them our social justice curriculum. We call it identity forming curriculum where they're talking about difficult topics like colorism, bullying, like self-love. What is mass incarceration? What is sexualization of women in media? And being able to really dive into these very difficult topics. We believe that by doing so, we're giving them that confidence, that power and that understanding to be able to name what am I feeling in the world? Like if something is they're experiencing a microaggression, them being able to identify it, being able to name it, then gives them power to then almost take control of that situation and to know how to navigate it in a way that they can advocate for themselves. And so I think that's the third and most important piece at Homeworks where we're really being very intentional about making sure we're building them up to know that they are powerful, they are beautiful, they are incredible. And I think that's what makes up our culture at Homeworks. There's also something a part about life skills. Maybe some of that overlaps what you're saying as well. Over the years, we've had a bunch of people that all been trying to tackle the same problem, which is you have kids growing up in quite affluent communities and they have great education and they have a strong network, but they can't do anything for themselves other than what's programmed for them through sports and through other activities. What we used to call street smarts, kind of understanding the world around you and how do you navigate? When you want to get a job, how do you dress? How do you act? How do you behave? What do you do? Who do you talk to? How do you write a resume even? I mean, all kinds of very basic but critical life skills that not everybody learns them even over a long period of time, but it's something that's never or hardly ever in a typical educational curriculum. What do you do in that regard? Because I think that, especially for kids from underprivileged backgrounds, would not even have as many role models, people that could teach them or mentors that could teach them or observe through observation, see, well, this is how you do it. For example, I coach many, many, many young people and I'm not the only one that does that. And these are advantages that people have when you're in certain communities. And the coaching is often for high school level or even early college, very basic things about, okay, you're going for an interview. Why don't you research this company really well? Why don't you have a bunch of questions prepared ahead of time, not just to have questions, but things you're actually curious about, et cetera, et cetera. Things that are obvious to anyone who's done these things for a while, but are not at all known for people who just, they don't think that way and don't have education in that direction. 
you are right in the sense of all, I think, high schoolers, <laughs> which just need something that isn't really taught in schools. And so something that we have done, and I will say like, we are very grateful to our volunteers within the community, whether it's our parents, whether it's community partners. We just actually partnered with this organization called The Links, which is a group of amazing, powerful Black women who came in to teach things like resume building or managing finances. We've done growth mindset. We've done cooking, healthy eating, all of these different things I think any high schooler wouldn't automatically know. And the hope is that we're equipping our scholars to think about it and to be able to just make sure that they're ready as they go off to college. That's part of our program. We even have done activities like coding, poetry writing, dance a little bit of everything. But for us, it's just to give our scholars access to that exposure of not only are these concrete tools like managing finances, writing a resume to be able to then apply for a job and do what they want to do, but also things like coding, things like even going horseback riding or all the different things that we've done is also to expose them to different things to show them, you know, like, hey, is this something you might want to go to in the future? And having guest speakers, we had this amazing scientist. Her name was Dr. Cooper. She worked at NASA. We had Mr. Kenneth, who is a writer and editor for different publications and magazines come in. We've had an architect, uh, Josh Sinder, come in. And then we had Vanessa Gill. She founded her own company, Social Cipher. All these different people who just talking and inspiring our scholars where they can see themselves to do the same because our scholars are so capable. And if they just have someone who can say like, hey, I did it and you can do it too. Like you never know what could come of it. You know, when you mentioned poetry, the thing I thought of is, I don't know if you've heard about this idea, it's called narrative medicine, and it's actually part of the curriculum for doctors. There's even a master's program in narrative medicine, I think at Columbia and USC, and a podcast guest that I had on the SIDCAST a while ago, her name's Dr. Rita Sharon, is one of the creators of this program at Columbia. During COVID, they started to create opportunities for anyone around the world to participate in these programs, and I did a couple of them. I found it actually therapeutic. I mean, they have different forms of it, but what they did is you would read a poem and then you talk about it. There were very few prompts. There were a few and different people would share. And then you'd get another prompt to write something yourself. And it would be very short, like five minutes is all you'd get. So if you wrote a word, you wrote a line, you wrote 10 lines, whatever. And it would be based on that poem that you read. And it turned out to be very, very effective. And the reason it came up in the first place is from a medical point of view for doctors, one of the real skill sets that is not taught typically in medical school is how to listen and really, really understand what the patient in front of you, what their challenge is, what they want. Do they want this operation or do they want to be able to just do something in their life? And to listen is a very powerful thing. And that's where that idea came from. We even did a little bit of that with our incoming MBA students as an experiment, as kind of an optional thing. And quite a lot of students signed up to do it. Pretty interesting to think about what's possible when you start to bring in these different points of view and different perspectives. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because listening, I think, is such an important skill in any healthy relationship and developing that skill is important. But also narrative writing, something we've found, too, is that when our kids and honestly, anyone like even me, but when our scholars and I'm a trained English teacher, so I really believe in the power of narrative. I believe in the power of writing. But when our scholars have the chance to just share their story, that's giving them the power to have that agency to share who they are to show the world how incredible they are. And I do think that that is very, very important, very powerful. It's so interesting and it's fun. 
You don't have to be an English teacher or a writer or any <laughs> such thing. It's just really interesting. In any event, I want to ask you about a business part of this story, which is how do you fund all of these amazing activities? And it cannot be cheap to create basically a boarding school, even if it's small so far, and then bring in all these different people. And then this is kind of what you do. And you have a team that you've already referenced. So how did you manage to raise the funds and what's involved here? So I will say we are very lucky. Since 2016, we have raised, I think, over $2 million and have now a staff of 11, eight board members, and I would say around 20 volunteers who come regularly at least once a week, either to tutor or to do any programming. The reason why we've been able to get to where we are, I do think we've been very lucky. I ended up going to Princeton University, and I think part of that was having different organizations or different departments, eLab or Reach Out, where they were kind enough to believe in us and to give us some of that seed funding. And I think it was through that we were able to use that. I think it was the first year we won a competition where we had $10,000. And so we decided at that point, rather than blow the $10,000 to recruit a team to reach Research, we decided to just to run the program immediately. So with that 10,000, we got a house. Someone very kindly allowed us to use their house. We got staff, we got licensing, insurance, a bus, all of that to be able to just test those portions. And once we had that, once we got that, we had photos and we had success stories, people were then more likely to give and it just became a snowball. But I think the other part of it is talking to people and trying to get people invested in what we're doing. And so through that, we've been very lucky within that two million, a huge, maybe a fifth of that is they were all in-kind donations. So whether it's like daily dinners every single night for the past five years, sponsored by Sustainable Fair, whose organization within our community, they're just giving us free meals for every single person, like every day over I think at this point, $40,000, $50,000 of legal services by pro bono partnership, accounting services, every single one of our programming is with a community partner. So like if we do safe dating, it's with woman space in the community. Talking about poetry writing, it's with novelty. Coding, it's with Princeton students. All of these people have very much generously donated their time and their resources. And I think that's also a huge reason of why we've been able to continue doing what we're doing. So there's a few lessons in that. First of all, the idea of getting a little bit of money and then doing something with it is exactly what an entrepreneur does, right? You got to prove the concept at some level. And whenever you do something, you learn how to make it better and fix it and adjust rather than using that to just plan and create reports. So there's a great lesson there for anyone. But the other thing that surely everyone is hearing is you must be pretty good at convincing people about this idea. A lot of people said yes to you pretty early on. And that's something, right? I think part of it is I very much believe in the power of women. I very much believe in the power of community. And I know a lot of other people believe in it too. And so it's just kind of being able to share our story, share how incredible our scholars are and people naturally gravitate towards that. So we can yeah, very yeah. I mean, it's a great story. It's authentic and you're authentic, but people have to also believe that you can pull it off because there's people around that try to do stuff, good stuff. It is not easy. Describing the things you're doing, it's pretty complex business, actually, even at this very small scale. Makes me think about, you said earlier, an amazing dream would be to see chapters like this in a whole bunch of cities or neighborhoods, really. There could be hundreds, there could be thousands of these around the country and in other countries. The way I think about it is, well, you have to have a model that works, one unit that works, which is what you're doing in Trenton right now. You're kind of doing this, but have you thought about it as, here's the example. It's not a good example because it's McDonald's. It's so different the way you do. But McDonald's came up with a store and they perfected the system. And 
and then they franchise it. I'm not saying you're franchising. That's an ownership structure point. It's just a conceptually, it's a way of spreading an idea through self-funding or you could do it through partnerships or what have you. But there's a core business model that has to be in place. How do you think about that? And this may be a segue into some of the work that you've been doing more recently with Camelback Ventures. So maybe you could share a little bit about the idea and how you think about you know, what do you need to actually do to put Homeworks in a position to move to that next step of expanding and growing with multiple chapters and how that fits in maybe some of the most recent work you've been doing on entrepreneurship. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Sid. I don't think we're honestly anywhere near ready to expand these chapters, but there have been community leaders in everywhere from Delaware to London to rural Virginia to indigenous tribe in one of the communities to actually replicate this. And I don't think we're quite ready yet, but how we've been kind of thinking about it is just thinking about how do we make sure that everything that we're doing, we're putting it in manuals, making sure that we almost have user manuals for determining what is our secret sauce? What what is our theory of change? What are we doing here that can be replicated in different communities? But also knowing that within each community, every community is going to have their own strengths, resources, needs, their own specific thing that comes to it. But what at the core is Homeworks' model? And then how can we then, like you're saying, either franchise or having some sort of replication where my goal is to have Homeworks all over the country, all over the world. I won't be able to do this alone. I also don't think that I will be the right person to do it in every community. I think we'll have community leaders running it and starting that chapter. I will say we haven't thought too much in detail about it. My focus is Trenton right now. My focus is to get this up and, and really running at full capacity and full scale. The more we learn, the more we'll be able to solidify it and then we'll be able to go out and do it in other places. In terms of Camelback, I am very grateful to Camelback to be a part of this fellowship. And for those who don't know, Camelback is a fellowship program where they have underrepresented founders, either women or people of color. And they put them through a training program, give them community and just have like all these different skills that we learn throughout the process. And I just actually wrapped up my fellowship. And I think the biggest thing for me that I've learned is culture building. So just thinking about what does it mean to build a culture? We started off with me as ED. I was the one mopping the floors, getting the groceries, like doing all these things. And now that we've expanded in this year, we expanded from four to 11 staff members. How do we now create a culture where everything is being reflected of our values? But even when I'm not in the room, everyone knows the culture enough where everyone is reflecting that culture. And an example of it could be thinking about our procedures within hiring and onboarding. So rather than just copy and pasting from the corporate company where we're just going to do the references, all of these things, if we really believe in transparency, if we believe in being equitable and being intentional and empathetic when a candidate has gone to their last round, can we do a mutual reference process where not only do we ask for their references, but they get to ask for our references and can talk to people to understand is this the right fit for them? So even that small tweak just shows like, okay, this is really aligned with our culture and how can we, yeah, just think about this more critically. How can we really make those changes? And that's what we're in the process of doing right now. It strikes me that what you're doing, it's nonprofit, but it is a business and it requires every aspect of any other business, which is building culture, which is leadership, which is building teams. And then the core elements of what goes on behind the scenes that includes operations and finance and accounting and legal, you mentioned, and you're relying on the village to help, which is 
a necessity when you don't have unlimited funds and maybe it's always going to be part of the model. The other thing I think of is since you're creating a template, if you want to expand or you want to see this be seeded elsewhere, it would help to be able to hand over a template and it's not only written because, you know, there's a lot of tacit knowledge, things that are in your head and maybe some others at this point that you can't write down every aspect. You yourself can't actually be everywhere at the same time. So it's an intermediate to longer term challenge. But I think it's going to be the real test of how leverageable can this be? But I think you're doing all the right things to kind of figure out how to make it work right now, which without that, nothing happens, right? I want to go back to the first student that's off to college. So she's going to college without this community directly with her. I mean, she's not that far, I guess, physically in this case, although in theory, any kid that goes to college could be anywhere in the country or in the world for that matter. So there's been an effort, maybe you've seen this at Princeton as well. We see it at Dartmouth, we see it at Harvard, we see it a lot of places to try to diversify the undergraduate student body in particular, expanding the socioeconomic background of kids. There's been much more interest in racial diversity when it comes to gender, it's pretty close to 50-50 in probably most schools. Actually, it's probably more women than men when you get right down to it and you start to look at it. But for example, the kid that lives in some little town in southern Texas didn't even hear of Princeton, never even heard about it, doesn't know anything about it. But somehow through luck of DNA and maybe a great mentor somewhere has the capability to succeed at a top school or any university really. And then she or he shows up and they're all alone. There's not a lot of other people like them. This is a big challenge. I've always said to people here that it's not enough to go out of our way to try to bring in kids with very diverse socioeconomic backgrounds. That's good, we can pat ourselves on the back, but we need to help them succeed. And that requires us building a community. And there are groups that do this group called the Posse Organization that's out of Nashville that does this. There's probably a bunch of others. Do you think at this stage, homework says, okay, someone has graduated, they're off to university. You know, in an ideal world, we would continue to be helping them, but we just can't because that's not what our business is, what our model is. And do you worry about their ability to succeed at that next step? Yeah, I think this is actually something our board talks about a lot. Just thinking, you know, we are a very new organization. We have almost like grown with DeRay, our oldest scholar, where we recruited her before high school and then she went into high school. And so we're learning as we go, like, how do we even support scholars as they're applying to college? How do we support scholars as they get to college? And we firmly believe, you know, We don't want our scholars to feel alone. We don't want them to feel lost when they get into college. But unfortunately, that is the reality for a lot of students, especially from low income backgrounds. And so our goal right now, and we've made it a requirement for DeRay, and she knows this, (laughs) that in order to keep her scholarship, we are requiring different things. Like we're going to be doing site visits. We're going to be in contact with her. We have homework for her to go visit XXX Student Center or like go talk to this person, go look at these resources. Again, the reason for that is because we want to make sure that she's supported. We explained to her, we're not giving you homework just to give you homework. We're giving you homework because we want to see you be successful. And so those are definitely things we're thinking about. And given our bandwidth, it's not like we can be there all the time, but we're hoping to at least give that minimum support so that she doesn't feel like she's alone when she's there. The concept of ecosystem, which is very big in business and technology, applies, I think, here as well. You've kind of done that. The ecosystem means thinking about all kinds of partners and, in a sense, distributors that you need, as well as people that co-create whatever it is you're creating. And you've done that with a lot of partners. But the ecosystem extends, I think, even to once they've left the nest, so to speak. Because your ultimate goal is for these kids to have fulfilling lives. And those lives don't end at the age of 18, even if they go off to college. 
What would you say has been the biggest challenge or hardest thing for you to do or deal with personally in this venture you've been in for so many years? I would say two stand out to me. The first is I started this when I was 20 years old, working alongside a community and starting homeworks. I didn't even know who I was. I think I was barely understanding, like, what does it mean to be an Asian American woman within this world, within this country, within this community? And then pair that with, you know, I struggle a lot with anxiety. And so thinking about as in a startup environment where maybe in the same day you can get a huge donation or grant and then something is going on in the program where you need to deal, like there are always going to be ups and downs. And I think for me, one of the biggest challenges is how do I make sure that I am my authentic self, but then also figuring out what that means and like, how do I present myself? How do I be myself within my community, within my organization and within my leadership? And then second is how do I manage my anxiety in this startup environment? And part of it is just, I think I've learned not being too highs about the highs, not being too lows about the lows. And it's something that my mentor from college, Marty Johnson, who started his own nonprofit in Trenton, has ingrained in me. I think the other part of it is team and leadership. I think I am managing a team where some people are twice my age or some people like have had a lot of experience and how do I then take their lead while also making sure that I'm able to make the decisions to do what's best for our organization as a whole. I think the beauty about Homeworks and about our team is that we have a really diverse group of people within our staff. And with that, we have so many different cultures, different experiences, different personalities, different skills are being brought in. But I think the other part of it is then how do we really come together as a core unit and how do I, as a leader, be able to manage all of that? And it's definitely been a continuous learning journey. And then I think probably my confidence too, I think hopefully I'm slowly building that up. People listening to what you've done already will be scratching their head at that last comment. But anyone who understands anything knows that this is a very big issue for everyone, but especially for women and especially for people of color. And we talk about that in our class with MBA students who are your age and a few years older, who are very accomplished. And the word that people use, of course, imposter syndrome. You deserve to be here. And it's something that people have to fight against. It is odd that sometimes the highest performers have more imposter syndrome than the average person, which is crazy. But maybe there's some type of psychological study in there to be had. But it's a very real thing. And knowing that there's lots of other people that are also doing great things, they're dealing with it right at the same time. I've had these conversations with a bunch of my students and it's always surprising. Well, it used to be surprising, but it's not surprising anymore when they give voice to this because you see super confident people doing great things and there's something going on beneath the scenes that they have to deal with. So if we were to check in in five years, which is a very, very long time from now, where do you think you're going to be? What's your own aspiration? So maybe I'll divide this question into two. I think with homeworks, <laughs> I will say I know because we're actually closing on a house this month where after renovations, it will be big enough for around 40 scholars um, and we'll have a permanent place in Trenton. And so my goal for Homeworks Trenton specifically is really in five years, we'll have a permanent home. We would have raised, you know, we're hopefully launching a campaign soon. We'll be having to raise anywhere between three to five million dollars and we will have a permanent home. My goal is continue starting chapters. And so we'll have someone from the community kind of taking over my role, really having it be self-sustaining and being a pillar within the community and really be community led. That's our goal for Homeworks in five years. And then hopefully by then we'll also have chapters starting at least in different places in the country. And then the next step is the world. But I think personally for me, I hope that I am a leader where I am more confident and really sure of myself. And then also in terms of work-life balance, 
invented something that I don't think I do very well at. And so I'm hoping that I will be at a place of peace and groundedness where I'm living very intentionally and working very intentionally and continuing this journey of learning and growing and doing it within the realm of homeworks and what we're doing here. That's great. You know, your self-awareness is very high and that's a gigantic skill set for any leader, but also for mental health to know what you need to do and some of the things you want to strive for. This work-life balance, though, I hate to tell you, but it's a very tough one. I think the solution is when work feels like home and home feels like work or work doesn't feel like work. The whole thing I used to tell students who would ask me about my own career is unbelievably lucky where Sunday night feels the same as Friday night. There's no difference to me because the next day is just fantastic. I'm not the only one who feels that way. A lot of entrepreneurs do feel that way as well. But that means that it's not that you have a lot of time off in a traditional way. But finding some type of balance for mental health is important, recharging as well. What a great idea and great adventure and the progress you've made already. Natalie is really fantastic. Thanks for being on the Sidcast and for sharing your story and what you're up to with Homeworks. And I'm sure many people are going to be following. And who knows, you might get a call or two from people who might want to learn some more. Thank you so much, Sid, for having me on here. I feel like I always learn from these conversations and it just helps me giving me a time to reflect and stop, but then also learn on like how I'll continue just moving forward and maybe in a slightly different way. And so I just want to thank you for your time today for this space today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Natalie. And when you point out reflection, it is such a big thing. I found exactly this type of reaction from quite a few other people who said, wow, that was a great opportunity to reflect about me, just talking about me and what I'm doing. And by formulating the answers to the questions or thoughts, new ideas also come up. That's like one of the greatest things that can happen out of the podcast. So I'm excited about that. Natalie Tung, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sidcast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The Sidcast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please consider giving us a five-star review and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.